Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests... He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. As Joel comes uh, today and you are seated, if you would like to send your kids down to our kids program, uh, they can be dismissed at this time. Well, good morning. Hey, uh, heaven and hell were getting ready for their annual basketball game. And so God came to Satan and said, you know, our team's looking really good this year. Uh, We've got Wilt Chamberlain and Moses Malone, Pete Maravich running the point, and most recently, Kobe Bryant, unfortunately. Our team looks really good, and I don't think you have a chance. And Satan said, now, God, don't count your chickens before they hatch, because we have all the referees. Okay, all right, thought that would go over a little better. Let's try another one. There was a woman who passed away uh, suddenly. She had an illness that overtook her quickly, and um, her husband, faithful to her to the end, uh, by her bedside as she departed. And, um, she knew the Lord, and so she went to heaven, and at heaven's gate she met Peter, as many stories often go, and Peter stands there and says, welcome to heaven. You just need to answer this one question or do this one thing, and, and you'll be able to enter. And, and she says, okay, what do I need to do? And he says, I, you just need to spell a word. She says, okay, no problem. And so she said, what's the word I need to spell? I'm a pretty good speller. And so he says, spell the word love. So she says, L-O-V-E. And the gates begin to open. She walks into heaven, and it is more beautiful, magnificent than she ever imagined. And she thoroughly enjoys her time there. And while time really isn't a thing uh, in heaven, on earth, three years had passed. And Peter uh, comes to this woman and says, hey, um, I'm actually thinking about taking the day off and going fishing with Jesus. So would you watch the gate for me? She says, okay, no, no problem. What, what do I need to do? She's, he's like, you know the thing, just tell him to spell the word. And so she goes and she's standing at the gate and a, a few moments go by and lo and behold, the first person that she sees is her husband. Wow, this is incredible. I, I, what are you doing here so soon? He's like, well, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of struck me too that I, I didn't think I would be here this quickly. And she said, well, how have you been? How has life gone since I died and, and came up here, and, and he said, well, honestly, 
really well. Uh, that nurse, uh, that younger nurse that was taking care of you, we got married, and I bought a lottery ticket. We won the lottery. We've gone all over the world, Paris, Rome, Greece. We've been all kinds of places. We were able to buy a really nice lakefront property, and actually, why I'm here today, I was out water skiing, and I had a bad accident, and a ski hit me right over the top of the head, and, and I died suddenly. She said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And he said, oh, okay, what, what needs to happen here? And she said, just don't worry, just need to spell a word and the gates will open. And he said, okay, what word do I need to spell? She kind of looked down and looked back at him and thought about all he had said and said, Czechoslovakia. <laughs> now, it's, it's fun to, to joke and think about who gets into heaven and who doesn't, who picks who and how does that all work. And, and really, this is sort of a biblical idea. It's this idea of election. No, it's not the election that our country just had. It's something totally different. We're not even going to talk about or think about that today. We're talking about the biblical concept of election. Last week, Dusty preached on this idea of eternal security. And so this morning, naturally, we have to discuss these biblical passages in the text, specifically places like Romans chapter 8, where God says through his appointed servant Paul, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Like in our parable this morning that Dusty read before we began our time together, Jesus tells a story of many who are invited. Some reject the invitation. Some are rejected because of their appearance at the party. And Jesus finishes his story by saying this, for many are called, but few are chosen. So what do we do with this biblical idea of election and predestination? This is a heavy, meaty, weighty subject, and friends, I'll be honest, this is not something that as a preacher I would sit down and say, I want to preach on that. that. You know, that's it for me. That's a home run, no problem. But because it's part of our Core 52 that we're walking through together, and it is a very biblical idea, and it is good for us to wade through today, we're going to take some time to think about, to talk about, to consider what does it mean to be elect. This great debate is a discussion that has been happening surrounding election and predestination uh, has been happening for centuries. For hundreds of years, the idea has been debated by faithful, God-fearing Christians on both sides. However, before we get to the two main options, the two main schools of thought that have characterized this thought of election in the Reformation movement, let's briefly just address uh, one that is also out there called universalism. Reduced to its most basic form, the philosophy of universalism asserts that because God is all-loving and all-powerful, all people experience God forever in heaven. That God just says, everybody wins, like he's Oprah, says, you go to heaven, you go to heaven, you go to heaven, everybody goes to heaven, right? That is universalism in a nutshell. Now, I've done a little bit of research on this idea, and shortly, over a decade ago, um, a man named Rob Bell, who many of you have probably heard of before, wrote a book called Love Wins in which he announces his affirmation of universalism, stating that he cannot be convinced that a God who is all-loving and who is himself the definition of love would send anyone to hell. Now, there's a lot to wade through in his book, and not all of what he has to say is incorrect or off-base. It's not all heretical, but I will tell you this. This philosophy of universalism does not hold up under the overwhelming weight of scriptural evidence. And most people arrive at this point, at this conclusion of being a universalist, not by doing a deep dive into the exegesis of the text and wrestling with the tension that does exist, but based on their feelings towards God. Scripture clearly teaches that there are those who will reject God, 
and he will not force himself on them. It, it also clearly teaches that there are those who God deems as evil, and they will experience punishment as their eternal destiny. So the first thing we must understand as we think about election is that not all of those on the earth are elect. Not all are predestined to party forever with Jesus. This is just the truth of Scripture. It's not my word. It's God's word. Now, on to the two main views, and I want everybody to put your history hat on. Um, we're going to go back to the 1500s. There was a, a man in the 1500s, a Dutch theologian named Jacobus Arminius. Those of you who are, are pregnant, some name options there. During the Protestant Reformation, that is the revolt against the Catholic Church and, and primary doctrine of the, the Catholic Church, Arminian theology, named after Arminius himself, was widely circulated. Arminius was at the center of church controversy because of his interpretation of texts that deal with election and predestination, such as Romans chapter 9, which unfortunately we don't have time to get to today, because his opinions contradicted those of the Reformed position, and specifically that of a man named John Calvin, who we'll discuss here in a minute. Arminian thought and tradition are still widely held. In fact, if you grew up in a restoration movement, non-denominational Christian church like this one, chances are you and are, are an Arminian, and you might not even know it. Jacobus Arminius developed five pillars of belief, a framework for his theology. This was his ideology as a framework for his theology. The first pillar is this, that we as humans have free will. We choose or we don't choose God. Number two, conditional election. A, a nuanced view of conditional election would be this, that God knew those who would pick Him, and therefore He picked them. Number three, universal atonement. When Jesus went to the cross, He died for everyone. Number four, resistible grace. God can reach out to you, but you can reject Him. And number five, the perseverance of some saints. It's possible to be justified and then be unjustified because of behavior. This is Arminian theology. John Calvin is a French theologian, and he is the pioneer of the other dominant view, I'll bet you never guess the title, Calvinism. John Calvin's Reformed theology became even more popular during the Protestant Reformation. In fact, the school at which Arminius taught, Leiden University in the Netherlands, was a Reformed school and taught theology consistent to Calvin's views. No matter your ideological bent, John Calvin is a theological founding father whose faith and life and work help shape Protestant belief today. However, despite what you might think, the five points of Calvinism were not created by John Calvin himself, rather by his followers who were responding to Arminius' five pillars of his own belief. Calvin died in 1564, and it wasn't until decades later that the five points of Calvinism, often known as TULIP, were created. Here are the five points of Calvinistic uh, theology. Number one, total depravity. We are sinners by nature and choice. We would never choose God. We're totally dead in our trespasses and sins. Number two, unconditional election. No merit warrants our salvation. It is only because of the grace of God. God chooses the elect. Number three, limited atonement. Jesus died for the elect, not for all sinners. Number four, irresistible grace. If God wants you, he's going to get you. Number five, perseverance of the saints. You can't undo what God has done. There may be seasons of struggle and sin, but ultimately saints persevere. And at the heart of this debate is these, are these two words known as monergism and synergism. This is the discussion of whether salvation is totally dependent on God, all God's idea, all God's doing, or if man plays some part in this, synergism, the synergy that happens between two things. 
Now, here's why I give the brief history lesson. A lot of us may be unfamiliar that this is part of what the church has wrestled with for centuries. There are those in the room today who are fiercely loyal, and there are those who will fill the room later on today who are fiercely loyal to one side or the other. There are those who have, been, uh, who have militarized this debate over the last several hundred years and believing that you have to be in the right camp in order to be a faithful Christian. However, if you were to ask me, Joel, is Arminian thought biblical and theologically consistent? I would say yes, absolutely. If you were to come to me and say, Joel, is Calvinistic thought biblical and theologically consistent? I would say yes, absolutely. See, I believe that we have free will and that God is sovereign. I believe the Bible teaches both. There's a, a list of faithful followers of Jesus on both sides of this discussion. Let me just throw out some names to you. Those subscribing to Arminian thought will be Charles and John Wesley, Billy Sunday, A.W. Tozer, Billy Graham, D.L. Moody, Oswald Chambers, C.S. Lewis, Keith Green, Robbie Zacharias, James Dobson, William Lane Craig, Thomas Aquinas. The list is long, and it doesn't stop there. It could continue until Jesus comes back. Those subscribing to Calvinistic thought would be some of these people. Charles Spurgeon, Francis Schaeffer, George Mueller, Isaac Watts, John Newton, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther, William Wilberforce. Some more contemporary examples. Tim Keller, John Piper, Matt Chandler, Andy Stanley, Francis Chan. These lists go on and on. Are there faithful, God-fearing, wise, well-studied individuals and followers of Jesus in both groups? Yes, absolutely. This is a centuries-old discussion had by men and women who are wiser, more studied, more spiritual, more gifted than me. We will not settle this debate today, nor should we attempt to. See, I don't believe the goal of our salvation is to figure out answers to questions like these, although it is helpful to struggle with these questions at times. It can benefit our theology. What we are called to do is seek the Lord and save the lost. We do this by responding to God's call and participating in His work. Both Arminius and Calvin held to an ideology, but this does not make it gospel, nor should we adopt their ideology wholesale as our own theology. There's a difference between systematic and biblical theology. Systematic begins with an idea and reads the text through that lens. The other asks a simple question. Biblical theology says, what does the Bible say? And it affirms it with this statement, I will go wherever the text leads. So let's not needlessly bind ourselves or others to someone else's ideology while we seek to develop a more robust theology. As I was studying this week, one of the resources I consulted was a book called Theology for the Community of God by Stanley Grins. And he walks through both Arminian and Calvinistic thought and belief. And here's what he says, Reformed theologies, whether Calvinist or Arminian, frame election within the context of the eternal past. Only the end of the process determines ultimately what is. We are therefore what we will be. The doctrine of salvation reminds us that what we will be is the community of God. So viewed from the perspective of the divine intention, election is fundamentally corporate. God's eternal purpose, which forms the foundation for our understanding of His historical saving work, is that through the Spirit we participate in the glorious relationship the Son enjoys with the Father. To this end, the Spirit unites us as one body with Jesus Christ. Election, therefore, is bound with community 
We are elected to community and for community. One of the key texts up for debate is Romans chapter, 20, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Here's what it says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So what does it mean to be elect? Friends, very simply, according to the Bible, to be elect means to be in Christ. God saved us to be in Christ for Christ. The predestination is for the collective community of God, who in His sovereign will has by design established the outcome for the elect. We are predestined in the sense that we belong to Christ. Those who belong to Christ are compelled by the Spirit to do the good work that He prepared in advance for us to do. And we must always be overly cognizant of God's relationship to community and reject our impulsive inclination that would lead us to read the Scriptures through the lens of individuality. See, the moment we read ourselves into the story, the moment we see ourselves as the main character in God's Word, we cease to have a theology and we begin to have a me-ology. God's elect are those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ are to be conformed into the likeness of His Son for the glory of God and the good of the church. This is the controversy that has surrounded the debate. And I believe we don't need to get into it. I believe we can have clarity Talked about controversy, let's talk about clarity. Here's what Jesus says at the end of his story in Matthew 22, for many are called, but few are chosen. And first, as we attempt to understand the biblical view of election and predestination, we must comprehend the call. Scripture is clear in its teachings about the calling of God. No matter which Reformed theology you hold to, Calvinist or Arminian, the solas are affirmed. Centuries-old confessions of the faith, Latin terms, that outline what it is that we believe as Christians. The first one is this, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authoritative voice in our lives and for growth and excellence of God's kingdom. Sola scriptura, it's Scripture alone as the authority. Second is this, sola fide, faith alone. Faith is the prerequisite to receive the promise of God. There is no law that can save us, no additional steps to take. It is faith and faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. The sin of Adam has affected all of humankind. This means that we are all in need of God's saving grace. Romans 3.23, for all have fallen short of God's glorious standard. And because of this, all of us require His grace as a release from our bondage from sin. Fourth one is this, solus Christus, Christ alone. The work of Christ excuse me, satisfies God's wrath completely on our behalf. No other work is necessary. The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and glorification by virtue of His covenant grace. Finally, soli deo gloria, God's glory alone. Salvation is for God's glory more than it is for you or for me. The life of the believer submitted to Christ is for the glory of God. All things God created in Him, by Him, and for Him. The authors of Scripture make it clear. God's call 
is for all. The parable that was read earlier, Matthew 22, we understand that many are invited and many reject the invitation or were rejected based on their acceptance. The exclusive nature of this party was not decided by the one who was throwing it, but on those who rejected the invitation. The invitation to salvation is extended to everyone. God does not predetermine who will be excluded from His saving work or His mercy. This is all over the text. In 2 Peter 3.9, it says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. John 3.16-18, most famous passage in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. It says this in verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes this to his friend, this is good and pleasing in the sight of our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And to his other friend Titus, he writes this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. God's call is to all. God's call is from His sovereign will. But it was also God who initiated salvation. In 2 Timothy 1.9, it says this, He saved us and called us to live a holy life. In Romans 5.6, Paul writes that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, part of the text Dusty shared with us this morning, even as He chose us and Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 1 Peter 2.9, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. And finally again in Titus chapter 3, 3 through 5, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Both the invitation to salvation and the initiation of salvation are clear in the biblical text. God has extended the call to all and initiates the salvific work on our behalf. In this, His sovereignty to save and our ability to accept are freely witnessed. Now, as we talk about election, we need to talk about where this idea first began, and that is with the nation of Israel. The communal understanding of election is the biblical precedent. Israel is the model. It was God who chose Israel to be a people unto Himself. Those belonging to the nation of Israel belong to God's distinct predestined purpose for them. But this does not mean that all those who were born Israelites remained in God's favor forever. Many of them excused themselves from it. To say that God predestined all of Israel is, as His people um, is not to assume that all of their actions were predetermined. In order to ascribe to this line of thinking, one would suggest that God, who we know to be all good, all powerful, all loving, and all knowing, would have ordained the sin that Israel committed. God's election was not about pre-programmed activity, but pre-promised identity. 
God's desire was that, that through his love of Israel and faithfulness to them, his character would be on display to the rest of the world. I will be your God and you will be my people. Israel was always becoming who God intended them to be despite their sin and failure. God continued, them to use, God continued to use them to accomplish his purpose in the world. Therefore, God's sovereignty is even greater because of his power to use imperfect people to still accomplish his plan. If all the steps were pre-programmed, predetermined, then the power is not as impressive. But because identity and not activity was pre-assigned, God's power is on full display. So what does this mean? Does this mean that God never influences the individual through election and predestination? Well, I don't believe so. I believe the biblical doctrine of election and predestination prescribes predominantly the communal aspects of election, while still making it abundantly clear that God's sovereign choice of certain individuals is there in the text to move forward his plan of salvation. In relationship to Israel, we must look at a man named Moses. From the moment he was placed in a basket and floated down the Nile, you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that the hand of God did not determine his steps. His unique positioning, individual influence, the compelling call demonstrate God's ability to use individual election to accomplish his will. This is perhaps made no more clear in God's revelation of himself to Moses at the burning bush. Moses had done his best to flee Egypt, having recognized in himself his own identity as an Israelite and an inability to reconcile that with the cruelty of Pharaoh. God's call to Moses is unique and distinct. His invitation to him is more than what it is to the rest of Israel. When at first Moses rejects God, God overwhelmingly asserts his will over Moses' free will. Who was it that made the mouth to speak is what God says to him. And Moses, having already declined the invitation to this election, realizes God's compelling call creates within him an impossibility to decline the invitation. Moses then responds favorably and leads Israel to liberation. Moses' individual election is not separate from, but in support of, the corporate election of Israel. We must also recognize that election does not equate perfection. There are those who might say that because they belong to this elect group of people, they no longer possess the capacity to sin. But this is patently false. We witness Israel and Moses sin frequently despite God's election of them. It's also worth noting that famous passages having to do with predestination and election, such as the Romans 9 text, which unfortunately we cannot get to today, that it is the election of Israel that is the predominant tone of the text. Paul is talking about Israel. Paul is expressing God's sovereignty in the communal election of his chosen people. And we must first read and understand the text through that lens before we dare see it through any other. So the most obvious parallel now to Israel and Moses is the church and Paul. As we have already made the case, the elect of God are those who belong to Christ. In God's sovereign will, He accounted for our free will. We accept the righteousness of God through faith in the saving work of Christ on the cross. Therefore, we are elect and predestined because we belong to the body. God, ha God has decided in advance who we are, the bride of Christ, who we, who we would become. And like Israel, it is not pre-programmed activity that is at the root of this predestination. It is a pre-promised identity. 
who the church is becoming, not who the individual elect persons are, has been determined. It is the reason we have confidence to draw before the throne of grace. Likewise, it is the identity of the community of God that is to model God's love and desire to the world and for the world, just like Israel. The Bible teaches clearly that we have assurance in our faith because we belong to Christ. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, establishes us for us an election as God's people, destined to become who God has already decided we are. But like Israel, this does not mean that anyone who has ever belonged to the body remains a part of the body. There are those who are cut off and those who cut themselves off, rejecting the invitation of Christ. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, condemning the activity of some in that church by saying, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some of you who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Our belief is central to our belonging. In fact, it is what solely decides who has access to salvation. Paul himself says it is possible to turn away from the gospel of Jesus and ascribe to a different line of thinking, therefore excluding ourselves from the election of God's people. Like Moses, Paul has a unique and individual call. Paul does not respond favorably to the message of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. In fact, he becomes the greatest adversary to the message of Jesus and to the mission of the church. Going on the offensive, Paul presides over the systematic persecution of Christians. He is zealous for the defeat of those who he believes have become apostates. But in Acts chapter 9, similar to Moses, Paul receives his own compelling individual call. Having already rejected the good news of Jesus, he is confronted by the sovereign will of Jesus Christ who rebukes his rejection and extends a new directive. And friends, there isn't much room in this interaction between Jesus and Paul for him to do anything other than obey. Having had a supernatural encounter, Paul could now only do what had been commanded of him, so compelled by this new invitation of Jesus. The Lord then speaks to his servant Ananias, who would disciple Paul, by saying this in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Go, for he, being Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Like Moses, Paul's individual election is not separate from, but in support of the election of the body of Christ. Paul would go on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. He would evangelize the world by planting churches, by preaching, and the discipleship of men like Timothy, Titus, Barnabas, and Silas. Paul's individual election was a linchpin in the evangelism of the world. It was part of the corporate election God intended. His life served as an amplification for the gospel message to those who would not otherwise receive the gospel. Now, this is a lot. This is hard to think about. This is hard to consider, and so I want to illustrate it in a certain way. One of my favorite parts of living in a big place like Dallas was the DART, the Dallas Area Rapid Transit System. There were several trains that ran across the whole metroplex, and you could start at one side of the city and get to another side of the city with relative ease, not having to get on a tollway or a highway, deal with all the traffic and headache and all of that. When it comes to mass transit, everything runs on a schedule. There are certain stops at certain times. It will always be where it's supposed to be. The train also always goes to the same places every time. Train tracks go to specific places. They don't deviate. 
But in order to benefit from this, from this transit system, from the DART, you have to get on the train. Once you're on the train, you have the freedom to move around. You could read a book. You could talk with a friend, listen to a podcast or music. You can take a nap. You can rap out loud, as I've witnessed multiple times before. But you can't change where the train is going. That destination is predetermined. You could choose to get off at another station. If you change your mind or change your plans, you can excuse yourself from the destination of the train. But it will still always go where it has always been headed, just without you. This is how we need to think about this idea of predestination and election. Just like Israel, God has ultimately, for His people, for the body of Christ, the church, decided where where they are headed. When you belong to the body, you are elect. But you can decide to dismiss yourself from that benefit of election. The train will always go where it has always been headed. The church, the bride of Christ, will always be reunited with the groom. And now, we might get to a point discussing something like this where we think, well, the invitation is different for certain people. Like, for me personally, I was born into a family of pastors. My dad, my grandfather, so on and so forth, on down the line. We have a letter from hundreds of years ago, Daniel and I found it, my older brother and I, of a pastor in our heritage who immigrated to this country. I grew up knowing Jesus because my parents knew him. My invitation to Jesus looks much different than probably yours does or someone like Paul. But this doesn't mean that our access is any different. God extends the call to all. Now, we might get to the place in our heads where we think, but this means that God isn't fair. If the invitation looks different for certain people, doesn't that make God unfair? And I would say, overwhelmingly, without hesitation, absolutely God isn't fair. And you don't want Him to be. Because if God were fair, all of us would be in hell. That is what is fair. God is just. And justice means that He's setting the world right again. And part of setting the world right again means that he orchestrates certain individuals to do certain things that amplify the call for all of those God desires to experience eternity with him forever. Quickly, back to Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What is God's interest in the elect? It is conformity to Christ. Friends, election is as much about sanctification as it is about the glorification in our salvation. God's decision about the destination of the elect is demonstrated through the character and competency the church displays for the glory of God in the world. This means for us today, we who are elect, who are in Christ, that we submit all that we are to Him. That we, in glad submission to Jesus and His salvation, take seriously the will of God for us to be conformed. This word conformed is the Greek word symorphos. It comes from the, from the root word morphe. And you'll recognize English words like morph and metamorphosis as etymological equivalents. It means to take on the nature of, to be transformed, to embody or to change. The elect are to be conformed. This is God's will. 
In the same way we witness the caterpillar undergo metamorphosis and become a butterfly, changing fundamentally its form and function, so does the elect person in Christ, becoming something totally new as God predestined a person of that identity to become. Paul writes so beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Friends, listen to what takes place. The believer becomes something totally brand new. No longer carrying his own banner, but marching under the banner of Christ, having comprehensively changed because of God's Spirit at work, the believer now lives a life unto God. Paul then outlines that God is making his appeal through his elect. Through the conformed, transformed people of God, the call continues to go out. So friends, it matters. We understand our role as the elect people in Christ, clinging tightly to its implications. Our status as the elect in Christ means that we live out the identity God has declared to be our destiny, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Love how D.L. Moody writes, out of 100 men, one will read the Bible, the other 99 will read the Christian. And as Paul says, God is now making his appeal through you. You are his ambassador. And in this process of conforming to the likeness of Christ, Paul writes to his friend Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The thought is continued in chapter 3 of his letter. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is actively at work in making you like Christ. So the life of the elect is marked by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. Able to transform and to teach one to say no to ungodliness and yes to lives of self-control and visibly represent Jesus Christ to the world. I love what Bob Goff writes when he says this, we don't need to keep auditioning for the part we've already been cast for. Friends, we are elect because we are in Christ. Election is about adoption. It is a decision about identity, not a predetermining of activity. I think every Sunday I've been on stage preaching to you, I've used an illustration of my daughter, so why stop now? As parents... Bailey and I seek to raise our children well, and we care more about who they become than little mistakes that they make and the what that they might do. See, as parents, we sit down to have conversations that will shape their future, and then we begin to outline what it might look to help them get there. The course is shaped carefully to ensure that despite individual success or failure, no matter what she chooses to do, either outcome can be used to shape her to become the person we desire her to be. 
parents who are laying out of, out of vision for their children to be kind, loyal, brave, loving, generous, thoughtful, courteous, and respectful, recognize that both success and failure provide opportunities to shape and to guide. God's election of you as redeemed is his adopting you into his family. It's a decision about who you are becoming as the bride of Christ. Not God pre-programming us, deciding all of our activity in advance. So let's remember, ideology is not theology. We do not need to adopt someone's ideology wholesale as our own theology. God is interested in election because he desires us to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. As my friend Ian would say, it's Jesus' party, not ours. So we don't get to decide based on our own subjective interpretation who does and doesn't get to participate. If you are in Christ, you are elect. And that election is a pre-promised identity, not predetermined activity. It's God declaring his forever love. God's love, his invitation, and election are available for all. So, just like Paul, I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. If there is something in your life today that has held you back from the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, from the renewal that Jesus wants to do in your heart and mind, it's time to allow our theology to translate to a doxology, a worship, an announcement that God is greater and bigger and better than any sin that you're holding on to. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, today is the day. Come, be a part of the body of Christ, part of this elect group who Jesus is shaping and transforming into his likeness, preparing us one day to experience the glorification of our salvation in heaven forever with him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you chose us people who are fallen and sinful who do not deserve to receive your mercy and yet you not only give us your mercy you give us your grace far more than what we deserve you invited us into your family you have called us your elect people people redeemed by the blood of Jesus invited to be transformed by the regenerative work of the spirit so God in this moment right now I pray that hearts would be open to you. You would replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a heart that will respond to your call. God, that you will establish for us a firm foundation in our theology as we understand who you are and called us to be. God, would you help all of us to respond to your compelling call today, this great love that you've demonstrated for us through Jesus. Thank you for choosing us, knowing us ahead of time, inviting us into your family. We love you. Amen.